Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by The Sinner. From executive producer Jessica Beale, The Sinner is a limited series event that begins with an unsettling and heart-wrenching crime, parents murdered by their young son. But the sins of a child are never his alone, and beneath the surface of a seemingly normal small town lie very dark secrets. You will know who, you will know how, you won't believe why. Bill Pullman, Carrie Coon, and Tracy Litt star. The Sinner airs Wednesdays at 10 and 9 central on USA Network. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Fall TV Preview Edition. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. This week on the podcast, we will be talking about the Netflix series Maniac, which dropped all 10 episodes on uh, Friday, September 21st. This will not be coming out till Sunday. So hopefully you guys will have seen a few of those episodes. We won't be majorly spoiling the show for you. Uh, we also wanted to announce, uh, because we have you here, that we have settled on what our next long form podcast series will be. Richard, do you want to tell the people? Yeah, I wish I spoke Russian, but uh, <laughs> I guess I could sing something from Anastasia. Asia. Sure, <laughs> Does anyone sure. want that? Uh, once upon a October, we'll be doing um, the Romanoffs, <laughs> the new show from Matt Weiner. You said that like a Romanoff. Please stay tuned to see if Richard and I will manage to work in every single lyric from the musical Anastasia. I think we probably could. Um, but if not, we will be covering the Romanoffs, which is a mini series. I think each episode is sort of acting as a mini movie. It, it, for me, it looks like a long form version of like Paris Jatem. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've heard the episodes are long. Great. So we will be covering a movie a week with you guys. And we'll also have you know, some, <laughs> of, some of the talent on to, to talk about it. So we're really looking forward to that one. Uh, it's the, the cast is absolutely stacked. Uh, it's going to, it's going to be great. So the Romanoff starting in October. We are going to be taking next week off. So rest up. We'll be coming back for one more fall TV show and then we will be diving into the Romanoffs. But this week we are here to talk about Maniac. We've got some interviews with director Carrie Fukunaga, a newly anointed James Bond director, Carrie Fukunaga and, uh, series co-star Julia Garner, who we, we heaped praise on during our Ozark episode. She also shows up in Maniacs. It was a busy time for her. We chatted with both of them. But first, Richard and I just kind of want to talk about this series, which I think we both loved, or at least I, I kind of obsessively love. Richard, where are you feeling on it? I mean, I thought it was great. I, I think that on paper, a lot of it kind of should annoy me. Like, it's kind of a Charlie Kaufman thing. It's kind of like quirky but like really 
I don't know, like, it's, I thought it was going to be this sort of hetero romance where Jonah Hill is this sad sack who just kind of pines after Emma, you know, sort of perfect distant Emma Stone, you know, so I was kind of bracing myself to be annoyed by it, kind of in a safety not guaranteed kind of way. Um, yeah. but I thought it was great. I thought it was really, um, the guy who wrote it is named Patrick Somerville, uh, or, yeah. or created it. And, you know, Fukunaga has some writing credits on it too. And, um, but like amidst all that sort of indie sci-fi pastiche that he, that the show does is like real heart and real, you know, sort of pathos. And, um, I think communicated beautifully by Emma Stone. I'm less up on Jonah Hill, but, um, yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised. So we should say, I guess, really quickly that Jonah Hill and Emma Stone play uh, two people dealing with their own um, issues, mental issues, I would say, uh, their own traumas. And they find themselves in this experimental uh, drug trial, which involves, you know, which promises to solve the need for therapy um, and involves going into sort of a dream space in three stages and sort of confronting your trauma and healing your trauma. Uh, when they go into this dream space, they find themselves sort of featuring in each other's dreams, which I think is where the fear out from the outside might come from that this is like some manic pixie romance thing, which is not what it winds up being at all, much to both of our relief. Uh, Sonoya Mizuno and great Justin Thoreau play technicians sort of running this this trial and Sally Field is also a, a feature star. I don't know if I want to spoil exactly what she does, but she, she is fantastic. And it's just... Um, I agree with you, Richard. I, I had a lot of tre- trepidation around it, especially when I heard about the show that it was the Norwegian show that it was based on where, um, we're inside this, this sad sax mind and he, in his, in his head, he's a, you know, hugely successful ladies man and all this sort of stuff like that. And I was like, blech, no, yeah, thank, no you. thank you. Um, but this winds up being, uh, like a two hander, at least, um, between Emma Stone and Jonah Hill. Emma Stone's, you know, a lot of people are comparing it to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And I think rightly so. But what this show reveals to me about Eternal Sunshine is that Kate Winslet's character, as much as I love her in that, in that film, is just an extension of the of the Joel Jim Carrey story, whereas this is very much like Emma Stone has her own thing that has nothing to do with like love or romance or guys, but has like it's a familial sisterly family trauma, and she's trying to work through that, and Jonah Hill's trying to work through his own other thing, and what they can provide for each other is kind of beautiful, but it's not um, that love conquers all. In it's in not the, a romance. Yeah, it's not a romance. So. It's like this really interesting journey into kind of psychic pain. And, yeah. you know, whether that's pain that is arisen from um, an innate um, mental imbalance, like jo- Jonah Hill's character Owen seems to be suffering from, or if it's because of a discreet, you know, but that, but obviously far reaching tragedy, which is in the case of Emma Stone's Annie. Um, and I think that in doing that and staying specific to the, their narratives, there's it, it, the show is big, but it's not a sort of broad panacea for you know all of our pain. It's really about these two characters in a very specific way, which I really appreciate. People who were nervous about the show or maybe wound up not liking the show because it is getting mixed reviews, um, I think we're worried that it might wind up being a bit more like FX's Legion, which um, I like more than most, but even I had to kind of bail out in season two when it just kind of got a little too intentionally alienating, I think. Whereas in this show, I think they do a really good job of anchoring these various dreamscapes um, in a reality that I, I find 
fairly easy to follow. What did you think of, of how they anchored it that way? I was confused at the, on the first episode and kind of a little annoyed. But then by episode two, I, when they, it, it, you kind of figure out what they're doing and it all kind of comes together in a really nice way. I think that like the important thing to know, this, I, don't this, I don't think this is a spoiler going in, is that while this show is set in New York City, um, it's not our New York City. It's not, our, you know, it's either another timeline for the United States or another dimension. Um, but it, things are different. History is a little warped. Technology has changed. And I kind of wasn't really sure what that was all about. It turns out right. ultimately, I think in the context of the show, it doesn't really matter. It's, right. you know, it, that's just kind of a setup to get to this weird like drug trial and whatever. Um, so it's, the show feels a little busy, a little cluttered at first. And you're like, okay, like he's come up with this world, but what does this mean? But the show hones itself, I think pretty neatly by, I would say at, at, at most episode three, but I think two kind of solidified it for me. Yeah, I think once they're in the world of the drug trial, it's all it's all fairly straightforward. I would agree with you. I felt a little disoriented uh, when it kicks off. There's a concept. I don't think it's a spoiler to say there's a concept in the first episode that um, is, is kind of ingenious, I think, where it's like if you if you don't have money for something, you can, um, you know, say you need money for a subway ride uh, and you don't have any money, you can uh, opt to have uh, what's called an ad buddy, which is just a person sitting next to you uh, reading advertisements to you. And that, that concept isn't explained. It's just sort of happens. And it is disorienting at first until you realize what it is. And it's a really bright concept, I think, of like, oh, this is what, you know, unskippable ads could look like. In right. The future. Yeah. It's just a person in your face. And, and it is a perfect example of what this show often does, which is marry the analog with the futuristic sort of thing. Yeah. But, um, but if, but it's not over explained. And often I like it when shows don't over explain things. But that's a case where I think it could have used just a little bit of handholding. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, th- I think that the ad buddy thing comes into play also with you, you can like rent these friends who pretend to be a, right. like your real friend or something like that. They're these proxy things. So what the, what that's all getting at is that this society, this version of America, or at least New York is very lonely and, um, and, and kind of, you know, atomized from each other and isolated. And even though they're all together in the city, like, which, you know, is a common trope of stuff about New York City or any big city. But, but I think it's so distinct for this show because of what it's actually about, which is again, um, people who are feeling broken and uh, whose lives are kind of in disarray trying to pass through some kind of crucible to get to a place where they can live happily or, or at least not, if not happily, at least, you know, with enough contentment that life doesn't seem like a constant sort of struggle. And that idea of, of connectivity, like you see both Emma Stone's character and Jonah Hill's character in extreme isolation. Um, Jonah Hill to the extent that he's sort of like created a, and once again, this is an episode one, like a, an imaginary brother, a version of his asshole brother that, that, you know, works for him. And Emma Stone, you see like her just surrounded by people, but not connected to anyone. And yeah, and she's doing, she's, she's a drug addict and, 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 and disappearing into that, you know, um, uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, anyway, I think <laughs> the funny thing, I kind of did this in my review too. I spent like paragraphs talking about like this, you know, like the, the kind of psychology of it, but it's also a fun show. 
It is so fun. So Justin Thoreau, who's, I think, just great in everything that he does, is so fun in this. Um, Sonoya Mizuno, who, uh, you know, was in Justin Crazy Rich Asians, works a lot with Alex Garland. She was in Annihilation and, uh, Ex Machina in that famous Oscar Isaac gif. She would be the other person dancing. Gives this, like, great, very physical performance where she's like, um, actually, I was, I asked, I was talking to her last week for something else and I asked her if she, like, hurt her back hunching over over like the whole time uh as as this as dr fujita this character and she was like no she's got dancer training so she knew exactly how to like hunt her body without injuring it but like it's an amazing like i don't know they're they're you're right that this show like there's so many things that like should annoy me that don't like it should annoy me that a beautiful actress like sonia mizuna is like sort of making herself a little frumpy with like a frizzy wig and an awkward posture but it doesn't because she's not like trying to be ugly because she's also still very sexy but it's just like it's this interesting kind of gonzo performance and they're all doing that to varying degrees except for Jonah Hill, who's doing something extremely muted, mm-hmm. which, um, like you mentioned, maybe Jonah Hill, like, you know, wasn't as accessible to you, but, uh, you know, it, it almost to me seemed like an exercise in restraint for someone who is often capable of being very broad with his performances. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, he's doing something similar to what, um, other comedians like Adam Sandler and Kristen Wiig have done when they've gone dramatic, or Will Ferrell, which is to just like turn the volume completely down. And I think sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that Hill hits about, you know, four out of 10 in this show. Um, cause sometimes I'm just like want to shake him by the shoulders and be like, say something or like do something, you know, um, especially when you have Emma Stone opposite him in a lot of this. And I think it's one of the best performances she's given to date. Like, I think she's so good in it. Um, because of the nature of the, the way the series is built and these kind of trips into the mind, she has to play other characters, you know, a kind of a, a pretty wide array of, of different kind of people. Um, and then she's fun in those and she's, you know, completely game and competent in that. But I think that the, the, the overarching thing of this Annie character that she plays from beginning to end, um, is just such fully felt, um, insightful acting and I, I think that Hill's kind of mutedness really suffers by comparison it's interesting when you get um, towards the end there's a dream dream space in the end where Jonah Hill kind of gets uh, to go off the leash mm-hmm. and do something very broad and I I mean once again it's something that I think should have really annoyed me because it comes with like a strange voice and a weird wig and all this sort of stuff like that and it's still it just really work for me and also like some of his early stuff like the i don't know he does like a jersey mullet thing that also works for me i i think i liked uh jonah hill a bit more in this than you did but i i understand um what you mean where like it it can't be enough for a comedian just to like turn it down turn down the volume like uh you know jim carrey in eternal sunshine does like a similar thing you still need to be accessible but like for for me that character his character to me felt just so um like retreated into himself because he was so injured. He's just like completely closed off. And and like in theory, what this dreamscape allows these two characters who are closed off for their own reasons to do is just like share their pain with each other in a way that they could never do uh in the real world and find connection in a way that they could never do if they had those normal their normal barriers up. And there's also something um he ta- his character talks a lot about, um, you know, past mistakes he's made with women that he's uh, been preoccupied with and this sort of like latent 
simmering like rage almost uh this emasculated male rage and um his fear of it and his fear of repeating that pattern and that was something that i found really interesting from his perspective i think you're you know i mean i would definitely give this much more to emma stone than i would to jonah hill but um i think it's interesting that he wanted to try this yeah i think it's interesting and i think you know also something that i liked about the show and came as a relief because I'm just at this point so suspicious of this stuff is that I don't think that this is a show. I don't think that Jonah Hill's narrative is really about maleness and the struggle of that. I think it's, I mean, if that's in there, of course, but like, I think that it's more about his mental health and, and, and yes, yes, Mm -hmm. sometimes that manifests itself in, in, in ways, but like, you know what I mean? Like so many of these, like, like you, you, you saw and liked it follows, right? Yes. Okay. So that director's follow up, which I saw at Cannes called Under the Silver Lake. It's stylish yep. and it has all this quirky stuff and it's throwback, throwing back to noir and all this stuff. But it root, it's like just about this like shitty guy who wants to fuck a girl he's never met, never talked to. You know, that's the whole dramatic thing of the movie. And you're just kind of like, oh, so it follows was just kind of a fluke and you actually are just like another man who like that's all you care about. <laughs> You know, yeah. and so I went into this being like, all right, brother, here we go, you know, and it doesn't do it, um, which I think is so <laughs> is such a relief that I'm like, maybe I liked it, this show more than I should have be just because I was like, oh, wow, they're not doing it. Um, well, similarly, Justin Thoreau's character, who we meet in sort of like a sexually compromised position, and I was worried that that character was going to be something that was just alienatingly um sex driven or something like that and instead i mean i should have known better because thoreau is just i just good at everything he does and 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 the characters i think very beautifully written he's he's uh you know he wears he wears a wig like an actual wig within within the frame of the of the show and and there's just this tremendous vulnerability uh that never and and sometimes sort of over the top vulnerability that never to me gets annoying or alienating at all so you know another person we should definitely mention is julia garner who we talked about a lot um you know when we did our ozark podcast but she plays emma stone's uh character sister and um there is just a a really easy affinity and chemistry between the two of them that you see uh as early as as episode two yeah what did you think of of julia this it's good sister casting you know not just because emma stone bleached her hair <laughs> to match no no Julia just they haven't they they work i, I buy them as, yeah. as sisters yeah. um right. you know and and you know julia's a, a more of a supporting part but um really really effective in her episodes she gets to have some of the weird fun too um and she's really good at that so um you know she's having a good tv august and september i'd say yeah so this this seems like the perfect time to listen to our conversation with julia garner Hi, Julia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing so well. I want to let you know that we did an episode two weeks ago where we talked about Ozark. So it's basically been the unofficial Julia podcast season over at Vanity Fair right now. So um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, something that um, Evan Rachel Wood has said about Westworld is that it's sort of like the acting Olympics because they get to sort of play, you know, these, these sort of rebooted versions of different characters. And I was thinking about that when watching Maniac is like what an actor's dream to get to play, you know, multiple varied things within one uh, singular project. You know, I think, you know, one of the episodes I played an elf. So I think obviously the elf was named Aaliyah. 
and my character's name is Ellie. Um, I think you have to think about it if, if Ellie was an elf, if she grew up in an elf setting and she's, she is an elf. Like imagine if Ellie didn't have her life with her sister, didn't have the life that she had. Uh, and she grew up in a different scenario and different, uh, you know, yeah, different scenario. Um, and she was an elf. So if that was the case, if she grew up in a different place and grew up as an elf, that would be Ellie as an elf. In your sort of, um, I don't know if you call it this, but in your actor's bag of tricks, like, do you then make sure that you have certain, like, physical um, aspects that come through in both characters? Or is it just a sort of more visceral sense that you get that these are two versions of the same person? I think it's both. I think, you know, um, being an actor, you have to do physical work anyway, naturally. Um, but there's also, uh, that other element that you were saying that, you know, it's, it's, um, it just kind of happens automatically. I don't think you're even so aware of it. You know what I mean? It's just kind of, um, you feel the change. You feel the difference between the two people. You and Emma have this great sisterly dynamic, both when you're aware that you're playing sisters and when in the Elven thing when you're not. Um, what sort of work did you guys do outside of out of um, you know the scene work to to create that bond? I mean, we just kind of naturally bonded. Um, you know, it, it was very easy to talk to, to. It's very easy to talk to Emma. Um, and, uh, you know, we kind of, I, I think we have an understanding of each other and, and, um, it was just, I think it made it definitely, i mean, first of all, she's an incredible actress, so she can, she can read a, she can like read a phone book and do an amazing performance. So no matter what, she's going to, um, be amazing, but, uh, she definitely is just so easy to have scenes with because she's so open and, and, and warm and loving. Uh, but you know, I definitely think we have a, just as people, we had a lot to talk about. Um, and it definitely made it easier, especially when you're playing sisters or some sort of family member to, to have that. Your character is part of one of the sort of most stunning, shots of the season which is this crazy car crash shot where the camera's in the car and then it's out of the car and all of this stuff happened um can you talk sort of logistically about how that shot was was put together it's so funny that's one scene that emma and i kept on like laughing in between takes We're like oh my god we basically were going in a car that was like kind of in the air and we had to go up a ladder and the car would just it would spin it was like a roller coaster, which spin like in a, a couple times in a row, and um, <laughs> and like it it was uh it was definitely you know and we had to look like we were just like rolling around everywhere in the car and um it was definitely weird to shoot because it was like a it was like a, it was actually like a roller coaster so <laughs> I know that your your character storyline doesn't interact directly with like the drug trial and all that sort of thing. But, and I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts were on how Carrie approached or Patrick approached this particular story about mental health. 
I think they approached it really beautifully, and but I think this is a really interesting way to talk about it. You know, because in the end of the day, I feel like Maniac is about connections, and um, that's I feel like that's the only thing that I feel like people lose their mind when they don't feel connected because they're, they're, they're constantly searching for connections in this show. Given that you haven't seen the whole thing, but maybe you've seen trailers or promo images, are there any of the other dreams? read the script. Uh, read the script, sure. Are there any other dreams that you were like, oh man, I wish Ellie could be in that one. I wanted to be in that one too. No, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Although I will say that there was one, uh, <laughs> Just because I wanted to wear the clothes. Yeah. <laughs> if it's if it's anything, it's only about the clothes. Yeah. Um, but just to wear the 1940s out, they they had a time period in the 1940s, and they had. I mean, Emma looked so beautiful. Um, but they had all these uh, people that they were wearing 1940s clothes, and and I was just, you know, I was like, oh, that seems like. I'm like, oh, I just kind of want to walk around like I'm in the 40s because <laughs> that time period is amazing. Honestly, I think I got, I feel like I got a really cool time period. I got to be an elf. So yeah. that's pretty cool. It's very like, cool. How many, like you can buy 40s clothes and walk around with it. How You can't really walk around with prosthetic ears and, you know, an elf costume in society. Like, <laughs> Did you get to keep your ears? No. No, no I didn't. That's too bad. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by USA Network's limited series, The Sinner. Listen to the end for the final installment of Still Watching The Sinner, in which Emma Stefanski and Matt Singer discuss the season finale. In the last performance that I want to sort of tip my hat to is Billy Magnuson, oh, who is a, yeah. who's a guy who I talk about a lot. <laughs> As someone who is so handsome and then like, uh, it's unfair how funny he is on top of how handsome he is and how well he weaponizes his good looks for humor. Um, but he plays sort of two different characters, uh, in this and, and really fully embodies both of them, I think, and is really funny in his own way, uh, in both of those performances. Yeah. He's just like one of the best. I mean, you know, yeah. he, he's, you know, he's, he went to North Carolina School of the Arts. Like he's, he's got the training. He has a theater background. You know, he worked in, in, in on Broadway, uh, in like in the 2000s. Um, and yeah, you kind of, I dismiss him sort of as a hunk because he got cast in that Christopher Durang play, Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, which was a big hit, but he was kind of playing the dumb hunk. And I was like, okay, like that's his thing. But then he turned up in Into the Woods replacing Jake Gyllenhaal and was amazing. And it, he and Chris Pine have probably the best scene of that movie, that kind of mediocre Absolutely. movie. Um, the agony. <laughs> yeah. And then he's just consistently nailed it every single time since. Like, um, I, I feel like, I almost don't want him to have like the breakthrough lead role because he's so good in these character parts. Um, but yeah, it's just like every time I see that he's in something, I just feel like a little bit more excited to see it. Just, yeah. He, yes, he is hot, but like more because, um, it's just exciting watching someone be so good. Yeah. And, and well, and, and so, um, unprecious with their own like 
attractiveness. You know what I mean? Like, totally. uh, my favorite thing that he's done so far actually has been uh, the season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where he plays like David Cross's character post plastic surgery <laughs> and just like yeah. discovering his hotness. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's absolutely brilliant. He's also great in like a very like small role in the big short. And then uh, this is where I might, I might like deviating off of Maniac and have become a Billy Magnuson podcast, but, which I'm fine with still um, watching Billy Magnuson. I mean, <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, this is where, this is where I might get in a little trouble. I, I got so frustrated when, um, I don't know if you remember this, when Billy Magnuson was cast as like a, uh, a random prince from Somewheresville in the new upcoming live action Aladdin. Yeah. There was this huge uproar because it's like, how dare you put a white actor in this movie? Disney, I, you know, we thought you were better than that. We thought you were striving to fill this film with like actually like all non-white actors. What the hell? And I was, I didn't say anything. I didn't weigh in because I understand the, the, decades and decades and centuries of frustration that leads up to that reaction. But at the same time, I'm like, if you know Billy Madison, you know that he's going to show up to be a handsome dummy and it's just he... The, it's just going to be there to make fun of him and then he's going to leave because that's what he's good yeah. at. Like that's, that was my reaction to that whole drama. So I was like, no, it's, he's not the lead. He's just going to be a like funny cameo and you're going to laugh because he's going to be such a buffoon. And then you're going to be like, also that guy was so handsome. That's it. Yeah. And that's move it. on to the story. Um, and I will say to close out this, um, mini episode of Billy, still watching Billy Magnuson is that, um, I met him at a Tony's party a couple of years ago and guess what? Did he's you? really nice too. Oh no, he's yeah. everything. Yeah. And he's in the meddler for God's sakes. The meddler joined. <laughs> I still haven't seen the meddler despite all, all right. I have to go. This has been good. But <laughs> you have to go watch the meddler. Um, speaking of meddling moms, should we talk about Sally Field's performance? In- yeah, I think she's really fun. You know, I was thinking about watching her in this is that like, with the exception of a few, Jane Fonda, Sigourney Weaver, actresses from that era 70s 80s like they didn't get to do a lot of sci-fi at least the ones who were like winning oscars and all that stuff i feel like that reality has changed a lot where like you know natalie portman's in annihilation nicole kibben does you know like like i feel like it's more allowable now because it used to be that the like the b actress would get that you know so it's just kind of fun to watch sally field who we associate with like realist stuff like norma ray and places in the heart in this like quirky weird movie and just like totally you know fluid in it to the manner born having a complete ball i mean there's a little like shades of hello my name is doris right in, sure in, yeah like what she's doing but like um having a ball not only as i mean i guess this is a mild spoiler so i'm gonna give you a minute to like pop ahead if you want to but not only as a human but as like the voice of a computer. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, oh, yeah, and then, yeah. and then embodying that computer within the dream world and stuff like that. I don't know. And I just, I had so much fun with these various dream worlds. Um, you know, the, the 1940s caper, the 1980s caper, if we want to call it that, the, uh, you know, and even the high fantasy sort of Lord of the Rings nonsense. Like it just all worked for me as like a fun, acting olympics for for these you know great performers chiefly emma stone to just sort of disappear into these fun little projects you know within this larger story about trauma and and the impossible balance between comedy and poignancy you know what i mean that yeah just now and i yeah they really do and like each one of these kind of absurd things uh finds that 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 moment you know some are longer than others but like each one has a sort of emotional register to, register to it it all sort of d- gently bends back to like 
the real world people's narrative, you know, um, I just think it's very cleverly designed and um, made by somebody or somebody's who are genuinely thoughtful and like empathetic people. And I, I think that that is dismayingly and maybe deceptively rare in this, I mean, I'm calling it filmmaking, but you know, even though this is technically a TV show, but like in this kind of filmmaking, like this kind of young guy, like hip, like referency stuff, like there's a lot of kind of almost sociopathy in that in a lot of the time, if you actually look at it and not here at all, which I think is what makes it so much better than what, what it could have been. So Patrick Somerville, who, um, you know, created and has the main writing credit on the series also worked on the leftovers and um the did you watch leftovers richard uh yeah it's a masterpiece it's a masterpiece and and some of the like the i i had issues with season one but uh absolutely love season two and three and we'll defend them as perfect seasons of television and and season two and three are when uh, the leftovers decided that they could do poignancy while also having some fun sometimes and the ways in which that manifested uh most sort of specifically were these two kind of dream sequences that justin thoreau's character disappears into the the, the like the most famous one of season two uh called international assassin and um this this season of television this I don't know. I think it's like eight hour. I don't know. It's, it's not quite 10 hours of television. That maniac is, is, um, is like international assassin stretched out longer with, with, uh, you know, more, more points of view represented. It's not just, you know, our, our white male hero, but, um, it's, international assassin ends or or that season of the leftovers ends with justin rose throws character in this like sort of dream space terribly singing a karaoke version of homeward bound uh like crying and singing it awfully and it that is one of the most poignant moments of television i have ever seen in my life i like i can just watch it on youtube and cry and uh it's so weird like you know that he has to sing this song in order to get home it's so weird and once again shouldn't work but i gotta at this point given the evidence on the table credit patrick somerville for that ability to keep emotional um, like the emotional core of something in the midst of gonzo weirdness. Yeah. You know? All you have to, I mean, not all you have to do. It's, it's tricky. I don't, I don't know how to do it myself, but like is just <laughs> tether that weirdness to something real and human, you know? Yeah. That's all you, you can, you can go as weird as you want as long as some little tendril connects to what we know, you know? Um, and I think that this show, well, there are a couple of missteps. I think some of the stuff is not my favorite, but like, you know, that's to be expected. But I think for the most part, you just kind of feel what, the show is trying to do, you know, and, um, you know, I, well, an, another big part of that is also Dan Romer's score, uh, yeah. which is, you know, Dan Romer, who did the music for Beasts of the Southern Wild, he's worked with, um, Carrie Fukunaga before with, um, Beasts of No Nation. Um, he likes to make movies with Beasts in the title. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he just has this, I don't know, this kind of cool contemporary thing, but also that, harkens back with all these you know he likes a lot of like horns like uh, he can get a sense of swell in there but also be kind of like small and little plinky and 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 weird uh so i don't know he has great range and it really comes all comes uh, uh, to bear in the show Uh, i think it's like a really major part of what makes the whole thing work 
And so the last thing I want to ask you, just only because I don't know, I, f- I feel like we should talk about it, is like the um, is there anything in Maniac that gives you any further thoughts about what a Carrie Fukunaga James Bond uh, would look like? I mean, it's such a different kind of thing, you know, because for all of its silliness, James Bond is rooted in, in, in reality, so to speak. Um, but I think that he shows in one scene, early scene in particular in the second episode that he's, and he's shown elsewhere in his directing career is that he has a really good grasp of like kind of kinetic energy and mm-hmm. how things would really move and if they slammed into each other what which way would they spin you know like like he's he's got a he's his physics are good um and i think that goes a long way to making a good action movie in terms of making a good james bond movie um he also proves in this and in true detective and anything else he's very good at atmosphere and you know when bond isn't shooting or running or whatever chasing it's all atmosphere and so i think that he can marry those two things well so i, I think it bodes well yeah, I like how you talked about that scene in episode two uh, without saying what it was, but I agree with you. And then there's also a lengthy, um, I'm just going to call it hallway fight towards the end that is another sort of action set piece. And in both cases, I think he has a really tight control that so often, and especially I think Netflix falls into this problem with their like Marvel TV shows. The action can be so disorienting and muddy because when you're working on a TV schedule, maybe you just don't have the time to make sure that what you're doing is exactly coherent. And I, I find Carrie Fukunaga's, uh, action, you know, we, we saw it also in that, in that great one shot, uh, from True Detective season one, that famous one or that, uh, yeah, he just has tight control over action. So I don't, I'm not worried that his James Bond action will be muddy. I agree with you in terms of atmosphere in this, uh, you know, season of television. I kind of feel like this season of television is Carrie Fukunaga's calling card of like, I can do literally anything. Yeah. Whatever genre you want me to do, I can do it. Um, which is something, you know, there's this great profile on him in GQ that came out, I think last month, sort of talking about because there was a period of time when he was, <clears throat> like exiting projects left and right. There was it, there was the alienist. Um, and so he got this reputation for not being able to sort of play well with others. And, um, I, I think what's interesting about Carrie Fukunaga, first of all, I, I'm not sure that's true. He's also talked about taking notes from Netflix to shape this show to their algorithm. So if that doesn't prove that someone can like work within the structure of something, um, I don't know what, what does. Yeah. But secondly, um, you know, he made C Nombre and then he made Jane Eyre intentionally so, uh, to make something so different that he would not get pigeonholed into being one kind of director. And, you know, if he can figure out a way to work on projects, uh, that don't like leave him frustrated and wanting to leave, I'm excited to see him do kind of literally anything at this yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. So. I, it's funny. There, there's one shot also in the second episode early on where I was like, oh man, his it would have been really good. Like, uh, which one? <laughs> I mean, I, it's just, a, it's just an establishing shot of a young woman at a small town gas station and just, but just the feel of it. You're like, Oh, we're in dairy, you know, that this is it. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, it, um, it made me kind of long for the, what could have been. And let's go now to our conversation with director Carrie Fukunaga. I wanted to kick off. I was, I was just talking to Alex Garland about the way in which he constructs 
sci-fi and he says he likes to think about it as his worlds as five or ten minutes in the future which is an expression i hadn't heard before i was wondering how you describe this world outside of the dream world in maniac how far in the future are we is this the future what is this i definitely think of, think of it as the present tense but sort of in a in a parallel reality in the um einstein multiverse sense like at some point some connection was made between two people that shifted the course of reality into the technological, mildly, only mildly dystopian version that is portrayed in the show. There has been times in Hollywood where people have used um, issues of mental health for almost, I don't know, whimsy or something like that, which I think Maniac really um, avoids. I was really impressed by that. When you're telling a story about mental health issues or mental illness, um, how do you avoid falling into the trap and, and what steps do you take to make sure you're you're handling the, the subject delicately? I suppose intent is the first step. Uh, Patrick and I both were very clear that we didn't want to, to make a joke out of mental illness. Um, the original show is set in a mental hospital and that was one of the first things I changed. Um, sort of settling on a a drug trial, pharmaceutical drug trials, and means to get to delusions rather than psychosis. Um, then in terms of the characters and creating the characters and whatever they're going through, yes, there is some some humor based around the situations that they're involved in and some of their actions they take, but their illness is, is hopefully, you know, treated with as much compassion as possible. And I think it's just based on the fact that both Patrick and I both uh, are sensitive to stigma of mental illness um, and what that means within the family and within society, within work, and, and are trying in, in this exploration, in this particular story, to humanize one person or two people's or actually multi, multiple people's experience with their neuroses, whatever they might have. Uh, in episode six, uh, Emma's character, Annie, says to Danielle, uh, what is normal anyway? And I just really love that line because that's essentially... Everything about the show, including the alt sort of sci-fi universe we were just talking about, is 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 unsettling, or, or it just isn't. It's not what we're used to. It's not what, what we can think of as being real. And so, the question of normal is sort of uh, even in the quote-unquote reality world is is turned upside down because there is no normal. My understand you mentioned the original series. My understanding of that series is that um, you know it takes place very firmly inside one person's head, our male protagonist. At what point did you decide to make this, you know, at the very least a two-hander, if not, I don't know, a four-hander, a five-hander, or whatever you would call it? Well, part of it was practical. Uh, coming off True Detective, um, it was absolutely essential to have both Matthew and Woody um, as part of the show because you know they have busy lives, they're family men as well. Um, you know, Emma is one of the biggest stars in the world. Um, there are going to be times when she's not available. We need to shoot. So starting off the two-hander was just like, this is a, a more practical way to make shows like this if you're going to hire uh, uh, actors of this caliber. Um, and then bringing in even more talent like Justin Theroux and Sally Fields and Julia Garner and Sonoy Mizuno and you know, everyone else we, we brought in, Hank Azaria, you know, it's like we got this incredible group of people, but we also had really difficult schedules to balance. But uh, thankful, thankfully, we were able to make it work. The show also has um, 
does a really good job of anchoring us in the main narrative while hopping in and out of these sort of dreamscapes. Um, how do you, how do you navigate that? How do you make sure that we don't get lost in the various worlds that you're presenting for us? I think there's always a question that uh, we're never quite sure if we're losing people. So I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> I'm sure people who don't feel that way, <laughs> but um, I mean, the, the the idea here is that, you know, over the course of the 10 episodes, the baseline reality uh, uh, conscious versions of Annie and Owen are going to be on a, on a journey of self-discovery. But the, that, but the conceit of the show is about what these delusions are and what they reveal. So it just has to have that gentle balance. I'm really curious about um, the varying lengths that you have for the episodes. And since you have the luxury or the busy task of shooting the whole thing, so the whole thing could more than most other TV series be seen as one long movie, if you wanted to think of it that way. How do you determine what an episode is if sometimes an episode is over 40 minutes and sometimes it's just over 20 minutes? Like where where does that break come? That was a, one of the most freeing parts, I think, of the Netflix experience because of not being tied to very specific runtime for scheduling and programming. So you didn't have to unnecessarily cut down something more than it needed to be, and you didn't need to expand something more than it needed to be. So some some parts of the story are just, you know, some chapters, even like in books, are just shorter. You just don't need as much time to tell that beat. And so it's, it's tremendously freeing to just spend 25 minutes on this part of the story and move on to the next one. In fact, very satisfying, I think, if you've had very long episodes to have a really brief one. Uh, a friend of mine who had also seen the whole season and I were trying to, we were going back and forth and trying to figure out if we could, um, what movie we would peg each fantasy sequence to. And he came up with Raising Arizona for the first one. I was going with like the Thin Man series for the, you know, the 1930s sort of caper. Um, did you think of the dream? Are we just overcooking this? Did you think of the dream worlds as sort of tone matches for any specific films or were you just going for broader genre? Your friend definitely was right on Raising Arizona. Nice. That was something that, you know, an energy we wanted, you know, kind of especially since we'd been, you know, for so long and by that point inside Neverdean and also inside Owen's head and, you know, a little bit of Annie's world as well. And we just wanted something that brought them together in this sort of non-traditional domestic uh, situation, especially since Owen and such lonely people to throw them together as a sort of dysfunctional married couple uh, seemed like the right uh, uh, move there. And is that, so do you, did you have then one maybe movie in mind for all of your different um, dream sequences? Um, not always, no. I mean, okay. we were trying not to just do a grab bag of genre or films, but it helps language-wise to, to use movies, you know. And then from, you know, obviously the production design shifts, whether we're in reality or dreamscape and, and that sort of thing. But from a, you know, from in terms of shooting it and the look of it, were there stylistic differences that you were aiming for to distinguish one dream world from another? They kind of found their way through it, like, like when episode nine, like I didn't intend to do Dr. Strangelove kind of a style, but it just sort of naturally went that way based on the circumstances. If that makes any sense. That's so funny. Cause my, the same friend who said raising Arizona also said Dr. Strangelove. So, um, I'll tell him he's, he's bang on for everything. Um, <laughs> that's not that, but that wasn't, we didn't start with that. It sure. Just sort of ended up 
Yeah. Um, the, in, in episode nine, you've got that great hallway fight scene, um, you know, that has some camera trick seams to it, but like, you know, looks like a one long shot. Um, you also have that great car crash where the camera's in the car and then it's out of the car and, um, it's both disorienting, but really clear what's happening. Um, were those two sort of moments the hardest thing technically to pull off or was there a more challenging aspect of filming this season? Let me think about that. The, the, the car crashing was just hard because I had to like work with teams that, that, um, were far. And usually I, I do the second unit myself. That was difficult to be shooting and then beginning because they're on this mountain way up in Mohonk resort, like resort area, like, with hardly any cell coverage and trying to send me images of where the camera setups were, you know, after we had already done the kind of the, the A unit, first unit stuff and, and trying to coordinate whether they were putting the camera and, and moving it at the speed and, and in the way I wanted it. That was just complicated on a, on a logistical level. And then the Warner in nine, uh, was just complicated in a choreographic and, and stunt level, um, that which we had a stunt team working on with the camera operator while we were, while we were shooting for like a couple of days and then we were shooting the next day. It was really quick. So that didn't have, that actually wasn't that hard logistically or even execution wise. We did that in like four takes. Oh, wow. Um, um, so the most complicated might've been sometimes just a little stuff that you wouldn't even notice are complicated just based on time. Like uh, that whole ending sequence that, you know, that's happening in the control room as, as, Gertie's going crazy and Sonoya's being locked in, you know, Dr. Pujita's uh, being locked in her control room and Mansell Ray's gone blind and all these other things, you know, were pretty hectic and crazy and we had to shoot those completely out of order. Uh, and I, and some of them weren't, weren't even written yet. So I had to like think of like what the, what the order of escalation would be. And we might, and we, it wasn't like we we're shooting backwards, forward or forwards, backwards. We were shooting all over the place and hoping we were like getting each beat right. Right. Um, uh, for that to be intercutting with what was happening in Dr. Strange love world. Um, I did this, um, I don't know, overly obsessive thing where as soon as I finished watching all the episodes, I started it over again because I wanted to pick up, try to pick up more of the things that I might've missed, the things that you lace in and seed in early on and pay off later. Um, like hearing Hank, right. like hearing Hank Azaria's voice earlier and then being like, Oh yeah, of course that's Hank Azaria. Right. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, when you, some, some filmmakers have a sort of knee jerk negative reaction to the idea of Easter eggs. Like they just don't like that phrase. They don't like telling people to look for them. Um, but when you have things like, I don't know, the moon motif that goes through or the Don Quixote motif that, that motif that goes through or, or whatever that is, like, would you call that an Easter egg or would you call that just sort of, I don't know, weaving together a credible fabric of like, this is all taking place in the same people's mind over and over and over again? I, I would say, I, I understand why people might react to Easter eggs. It just seems like it's a gimmick to get people to watch something again. Right. And rather, I, I would I would maybe think of something more along the terms of just the layers being so uh, um, hopefully well-constructed that every there, that there's nothing, even if something feels random or tangential, that it's not, that it's all tied to something. So this, and then that, that's more just like in a construction execution sense that the because randomness is somehow just not satisfying in terms of a, a final crafted piece. And if everything, even if it seems like some crazy giant, like 
ball of yarn, but the threads all link up in some way, shape, or form. I read your GQ profile where you talked about um, working with Netflix um, to sort of understand the al- like their advice in terms of algorithm and that sort of thing. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, about um, how you view that as useful, how you still feel like you have um, a tight hold on your artistic vision while working within this larger, um, I don't know, set of advice, I guess, maybe that Netflix furnished for you. It really just comes down to whether people are using the algorithm or just whatever collective taste they have with, at the studio level, that that the, the your impulse as a, as a creator, your impulse as a writer or director, uh, and what you're trying to do is oftentimes a negotiation with the people who are financing the endeavor, right? Right, right? And everyone has an idea of what the brand is that they're doing and what they're trying to protect and also the integrity of, of the project itself. So it's always like a it's a it's a it's a real, I think, interpersonal negotiation about about what makes the best film. Uh uh and that question of what is best is a is a mixture of the artist's vision for it as well as like sort of the larger hive understanding also what might detract from the ultimate appeal of it. All right. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for watching it twice. I also appreciate that. <laughs> of course. Well, lastly, I will say to this show's immense credit, and please, other people, take notice, no episode of this show is longer than 46 minutes. <laughs> and in fact, some are close to 20 minutes. So, so, yeah, some are like 26. It's great. And you don't lose anything for it. I was just talking to an, uh, I'm, I'm currently in Austin at Fantastic Fest and I was just talking to a Netflix publicist today. Uh, she's on the movie sides of things, but I was telling her, I was like, tell your TV team that they should be selling Maniac as some of the episodes are 20 minutes long. And I said that in earshot of someone who covers television. They were like, wait, what? Some of the episodes are 20 minutes long. I want to watch it right now. So yeah, in, in, in the land of too much TV, the 20 minute runtime is, is king. So. Yeah. And in the land of too much TV, I really do think, you know, we've recommended some things with the this kind of little portfolio series that we're doing uh, between now and Romanovs. Uh, and I think this one is really worth your time. Absolutely. Like, of uh, yeah, uh, of, of all the things, uh, this is my favorite thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit with it a little while, but I think this might be my favorite TV show of the year. Just, it's oh, wow. very, ex- it's extremely my shit. Wait, so, but no, but did, when did young Sheldon premiere? Um, oh, you're right. Yeah. Damn. So, okay. Non young Sheldon. I guess that's the caveat yeah, for all of this. I mean, you you know I'm like just a ride or die Sheldon head. Wait, so, do our listeners know. not know about our Young Sheldon podcast? <laughs> Still watching Young Sheldon? <laughs> yeah, always watching Young Sheldon. <laughs> Airing right after still watching Billy <laughs> Magnuson. All right. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So uh, we will, uh, like I said, we will be off next week. We will be coming back the week after that to talk about an NBC sitcom, The Good Place, uh, which is one of my favorites. Uh, until then, Richard, where can people find you? Oh, in some dreamscape or another. I don't know. I don't know what it'll be that in any given day. Um, but luckily, my work on VF.com will live on as will my Twitter at Rylaws. How about you, Joanna? When, you're, I, mean, I guess you'll be in Austin. That's where we'll find you. I'll be in Austin, but I'll also be romancing a melancholy computer. Um, and, and also on Twitter at Joe Wrote This and also on VanityFair.com. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. 
It looks like they were poisoned. There's no reason Julian would do something like this. He's a 13-year-old boy. What did you do to your parents? They died. He's so far beyond anything you can understand. It wasn't supposed to hurt. And welcome to Still Watching the Sinner, brought to you by USA Network. I'm Emma Stefanski, the weekend editor for Vanity Fair. And I'm Matt Singer, the editor of ScreenCrush.com. We're here today to talk about the finale episode of the second season of The Sinner, which aired on USA last Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. And now we know everything that happens, why everything happens, well, why most things happen. Uh, and We made the, it. The, we made it. We did we it. We did it. The story wrapped up. It's over. But now we get to talk about it. We get to, yeah. That's the it's best not part. Done yet. <laughs> exactly. Not till we're through with it. So maybe let's first just kind of run down what happened. Let's let's go For through sure. it. Yeah. Uh, so basically, we start off with um, there. The cops are talking to an eyewitness who saw a man outside the motel that Marin took Julian to, talking to Marin before she was shot by whoever she was shot by. Right. The gun was apparently in Marin's hand when she was shot. So they think it's probably some sort of accident or struggle struggle and the gun went off right no one meant to shot any to shoot anybody else so who knows uh and there was also a 911 call made from the room which i guess was julian doing that uh and then meanwhile we have uh this new revelation of somebody paying money to mosswood from this strange mysterious like uh yeah offshore uh, account or something and i think at first ambrose thinks that it's like the police commissioner like the sheriff guy yes because the paperwork he finds the pay or the person who finds the paperwork who gives it to ambrose found it in the chief's desk right so reason around. right so reasonable to think that maybe that it's the chief who's doing it but what i love about that scene in particular <laughs> is when ambrose confronts him about it and he's like i found this in your desk and the chief was like why are you in my desk how did you he's get like, in my desk the, the important thing is why was this in your desk we're not gonna <laughs> talk about that now yeah <laughs> uh so it's not it's not the police it's somebody else uh we're gonna we will get to that um and then they find vera's volvo parked in the middle of the road and the ponytail guy ponytail guy episode one yes is sitting in the front seat yes not moving right uh which is creepy enough um but basically the car was there to keep the police from actually finding out that julian and vera were somewhere completely different we're meant to think that he's the guy but it's all been a it's a red herring and it was a distraction for the cops while vera and julian made their getaway to new york city yeah they go to new york city (laughs) I've been looking around everywhere since this episode. Haven't seen them yet. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, maybe... I mean, they're incognito. They're in hiding. That's so true. You wouldn't be able to recognize them anyway. Julian has a hat on. You'd never be able to <laughs> know who he was. <laughs> it's, it's a good disguise. Um, so they're going to take a bus out of the city. They're going to go on the run. Uh, I think Vera says to Washington. She has friends in Washington. So there's a flashback to marin's murder now from the perspective of julian watching it happen we don't see the person the perpetrator but we because he's hiding he's looking you know through windows he's under the bed he's under the bed at one point Mm -hmm. right and then 
we go – I guess by this point we've already gone back to Heather and her dad's house and they're talking and he says something like, you got any leads on who did it? <laughs> Just one of those casual lines that a dad says to his daughter oh, when she's a cop. Any leads? Question. Yeah. Any leads? Not at all leading in any way. But uh, he encourages her to hang around and to like clean up, take a shower. So let this be a lesson to everyone out there. If you ever do something askance of the law, <laughs> hide the evidence before you invite your daughter to hang out. Because while she's cleaning herself up and like doing the laundry, she looks in the laundry machine and there's something's, a, clanking, some, around something's there. clanking around in there. And it's a ho- it's a motel key from the with the, the Five Nations Motel where Marin was killed from the Twin Peaks Hotel. <laughs> it's the exact same shape, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't take much uh, effort to put it all together from there. Yeah, and uh, and she's like, "Why were you, Why is this key in your pants, Dad? Right? What's up with that?" And he's, I think, she confronts him with Ambrose, and he was like, "I can't, he, I can't do it with Heather here." Right? He refi- she has to go. So right. And she leaves, and then we finally get a flashback. Well, first, we get the flashback to the past. Tracy Letts suddenly has a lot of hair. He looks great. It's a good, it's a good piece. It's, he's coiffed. Yes. <laughs> and and Marin is uh, alive again. Poor Marin has died and come back to life yeah, so many times like, on this show. One episode of like being real time, like alive, and then she was off. Right. We're in flashback now, and. And uh, this very disturbing sequence where he he attacks her, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought was shot for maximum disturbingness. This attack it was really creepy. It was really unsettling. Yes, um, he's trying. He's seemingly trying to be nice. He doesn't want her to be, you know go home drunk or whatever. He'd stay here. And he like closes the door and he's like, "You're not leaving this house." Right, like, and oh it just God. gets progressively worse and worse. <laughs> and I thought there were some very striking shots where it's almost like he's like Tracy lets his body the way it's framed as he's on her is like he's like overwhelming her body. Like he yeah. like consumes the entire frame. It's like she's being like almost like the blob in the movie The Blob, like. <laughs> gloms its victims and absorbs them like that's what it or, felt well, that was the feeling i got from these shots they were like so disturbingly effective yeah or like venom in the upcoming movie venom right right <laughs> exactly soon. some sort of like alien presence like just absorbing and consuming someone just very very upsetting and her like face is completely turned away she, oh man yeah right. it's pretty disturbing so i did call not to pat myself on the back too hard you did it. That he had some role to play. Certainly, I did not predict no, that God. that specific role. I think we did talk at one point. Like, what if he's the dad? What if he is the the dad? Yeah. Yes. We talked about a lot of theories. Most of them were wrong, but the core <laughs> kernel of him somehow being involved, we did. That was correct. We did nail. Yes. Good call. Yes. Um. So yeah. So he's Julian's dad, right? Ooh, and he even says that. Like that is his line right so he was the one sending money yeah it's his the, the daedalus company or whatever right. which is named after the mythical father who fails to keep his son from melting his wings off sure it's a total coincidence that he picked that name yeah i was looking up like it's like it's a very sort of labored connection i guess to this story the daedalus name but i think it works right and so after this 
you know, we I, we're back with Julian and and Vera. She wants to escape. Uh, clearly, he's having second thoughts. He calls Ambrose, mm-hmm. and Ambrose basically says, like, "Well, if you want to do that, it really, I think the line he says is, is it depends on what you can live with.' Essentially, yeah, that was good. Um, which is an interesting line coming from him and his own past and his own messed up childhood. Well, what's wonderful about Ambrose is that he really never tweet tweets he never tweets he doesn't tweet a lot he There's never not a tweets. lot of, personally i would have enjoyed seeing him on twitter more on the I, show <laughs> i like mm. him because he doesn't tweet mm, i like this one got a lot of likes <laughs> uh. posts like jimson weed anyone know anything about this some crowdsourcing on twitter uh but he never treats julian as if he's like a child who's stupid he always talks to him as if he's an adult even though you know he's working the whole time to get him you know, not tried as an adult, not convicted as an adult, but he treats Julian as if he is like a person who right. understands what's going on, which right. he is. That's a good. That's a good point. Uh, before we get too far from it, I also wanted to say about what happened to Marin. You know, I mean, one of the things that's a hallmark of this show in both of the seasons, and is something I really admire about it, is the way that it it constantly like makes you recontextualize things and reconsider how you've looked at people, and and throughout the season Marin you know like she was like especially the flashback episodes where we saw Julian being born and all the stuff with Vera it's like she's a bad mom Mm -hmm. you know that she's so distant and remote and like and Vera heroically swoops in to you know be the mother to this child and to some respects that's true but what happened to her makes you rethink about all those scenes and realize that she was so horribly you know traumatized Yeah, yeah she was assaulted she was traumatized like imagine having this child come out of that it like it it explains so much about it and really makes you makes her story much more tragic yeah which i really appreciate it was one of my favorite parts about this episode and it makes it a little bit more understandable like how how she feels about being a mom to this kid because it's you know it's a weird it's a terrible situation to have a child who was you know the product of exactly uh of violence so yeah that i i like that as well but um yeah so at that point after he's made that phone call, Julian basically talks Vera out of, you know, going on the lamb. I love that scene. I like that scene a lot, too. It's so good. Like how she how she especially her expression changes because at first she's like, well, you know, you might think that now, but it'll be fine. And then she slowly realizes that he's made up his mind and that there's nothing that she can do about that. Right. And I also like how that compares with all the stuff we've just found out about Tracy Letts and his real father and his father, you know, hiding this truth for decades and cover or not, maybe not decades, years, covering it up and doing all this shady stuff. And here you have the son like kind of it's doing like the opposite and accepting what he's done and taking responsibility. And I felt that was a really interesting. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of like sunshine and rainbows on on the center. But that was kind of like a glimmer of – there's a little couple glimmers of hopefulness at the end of this episode, and I thought that was a nice one. It's a bit of a redemption arc. Right. Um, the the son corrects the father's sins or, you know, does exactly. his best to exactly. do Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so they go back. Uh, there's a – oh, there's a flashback where Vera's teaching him about plants. Yes. They're, like, running through the woods. Yes. Like, oh, this Frolicking. is a daisy, an oak tree. Yes. And he's like, what's that? And she's like, oh, this don't. This is poisonous. Don't put it in someone's tea or you might kill them. <laughs> yeah. File that away for later use. <laughs> what I did like about that scene, which it is, it's, it's, you know, like, it's like this happy, random moment of happiness surrounded by all this horrible misery and everything. It's like it comes right after – 
he accepts responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like he's kind of regained his childhood. He's kind of regained a little bit of innocence. And it's right after he is suddenly at odds with Vera, too. Mm. And then you see this part of his life where he wasn't, where they were kind of a unit together. So it's pretty It's a nice juxtaposition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So they have the hearing. Yep. And because of his... His, uh, they describe him as the unwitting product of a radical upbringing. Same. <laughs> and he has unorthodox views about mortality, um, that he should be like rehabilitated, essentially. Yeah. And so he is sentenced to a couple of years at like a, I guess like a, a home, home, a home for troubled youths. Four years, but he could potentially get out in three, they say. On good behavior. On good behavior. And so that's, and that's his, his sentence, that's the sort of the ultimate result. And then um, we see Vera walking. She has, I guess we didn't mention she's like burned the, the, the barn. Oh, yeah. Well, that kind of happens at the end, right? Right. And so she's like looking at the rock. The rock is still there. The creepy mosswood rock that they all pray to, the giant stone, whatever that means, is still there. And she's looking at that. And then um, and then I guess the final sequence is, is Julian and Heather – who's his sister, I guess, when you think about it. Yeah. And Ambrose final making another drive to Niagara Falls, which was where they were supposedly going the very first scenes of the first episode. So we've kind of gone full circle. Yep. Uh, there's no tea this time, thankfully. They actually make <laughs> it to the falls. And, and you have these two sort of siblings now looking out at the falls. And then the last shot is is Ambrose. And we talked about this, I think, in the very first episode, how this character who's got all this pain and darkness and, like, he can find a shadow to stand in in broad daylight. He's just never, like, fully in the sun. And the final yep. shot is this beautiful day at Niagara Falls and the and Heather and Julian are, like, enjoying the falls yeah. and Ambrose is standing apart from them a ways back. His face is cast in shadows. <laughs> He somehow found one to stand in, and it's just kind of this long shot of him, I guess, processing. I don't know how how you would read that, his emotions, his face in that scene is a very interesting sort of play of emotions on his face. But that's the very last shot is what what's whatever's going on in Ambrose's mind. It's very – it's a really good – like I was a little bit iffy on a lot of this episode, and but I really love that part right at the end when – they're at the falls and he and Julian share this look and Julian's kind of, he's having a good time. Like he's like, Oh look, it's really, it looks great. He's with Heather. Who's a nice lady. Uh, uh, and then he looks back at Ambrose and like, even the music kind of changes to this like minor key and mm-hmm. he's smiling, but then he kind of stops smiling when Ambrose looks at him. And I guess they share a look that says like this, I mean, you know, you still, there's still, that you still have to live life after this like right this, this is a fleeting moment yeah it's not going to be good forever and then julian stops smiling and he turns back and then you see that long shot of ambrose right. thinking about how all life is suffering <laughs> <laughs> um yeah pretty much pretty one much one thing that we didn't mention actually yes. is uh vera gave him i think vera sent him the tape of his yes. work yes we didn't mention <gasps> that yes the, the work oh my god right he receives it in the in the he's still staying in the murder room yeah he loves he's, that room he loves that room he's gonna move in permanently apparently but yeah he and he listens to his session with it like the mystery of like how he lost that time because mm-hmm. there was that you know the scene from an earlier episode where they're doing this very disturbing almost psychosexual uh, therapy session and then he suddenly wakes up in that room and has no memory of how he got there. Right. And so there w- apparently was no funny business in terms of 
you know, uh, hypnosis or drugs or anything. It seems to be, I guess, that her explanation, which was that when you confront these very traumatic incidents in your past, your your brain can block them out. I, I guess we're supposed to take it to mean she was sincere and that's what happened because we don't see – I mean we don't see anything else there that it could be. I still think he was drugged. That's my fan theory. <laughs> but he's recalling more of the horrible – events mm-hmm. and saying like well, she asked him like what he what does he want and his answer is oblivion oblivion, oblivion. the movie starring tom cruise and i don't think that's what he meant <laughs> although you're right that's that a good movie, movie that is a pretty good movie uh yeah that was crazy and then she like chokes him she chokes him oh seemingly my. unconscious yeah so maybe it was a post choke memory loss maybe that's what happened i don't know i'd believe i'm that. a little fuzzy on it Let's not try it. Let's not try it on ourselves and find (laughs) out. I'd rather not. So one thing I thought would be good to do at this point, now that we've kind of you know tied a bow on what happened, was on our last episode we kind of ran down what do we still not know? What do we want to find out? What questions remain before this final episode? So now that we're here, we've gotten through it. I thought let's look back back at that list and see how we did and see if we do know all of these things that we really wanted to know. Should we go through them? Let's go, let's do it. All right. So really I think the the number one thing was like what exactly happened in the ho- in in the hotel room and what happened with the tea? Did Julian really murder that couple? How did he know how to poison people? I think we got those answers. We got those answers. Everything we he did it, it happened. Yeah. He did it. That's what happened. And and he knew knew how to do it because he's he's a amateur botanist, I guess, and his he mother kept that information right. locked away and his mother explained how, how some of these exotic plants worked and including the one that could kill someone. Yeah. And I guess the idea is he was genuinely afraid and thought that these people were taking him. And he didn't know where he was going and he was scared. And as they say, he has unconventional ideas about mortality he wanted to like reset everything like reset them because i think he says early on in in an episode of the season that he 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 believed when he killed them that they would eventually like come back right they would go away but then they would be back and it would be fine which i guess is something that he was taught when he was a child like death isn't permanent but right okay so it is next question who was marin talking to on the phone in the previous episode right before she was murdered we know that it was jack it was the dad yes yeah the dad it was tracy letts <laughs> uh, uh so we know that one yep and my my kooky theory about speaking of my kooky theory about the dad not quite correct because i thought he was going to be like the ringleader of, of mosswood that was like my original theory yeah was that somehow he was either pulling the strings or he was in charge or oh, he was the benefactor was, yeah, 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 yeah but that was not the case he was he did have a hand here but he wasn't you know telling vera what to do right necessarily right yeah how did ambrose wind up in the hotel room we just went over that uh was there like an uh, was there like a grand plan behind everything that that there wasn't really it was more like these overlapping things yeah it just was it was a bunch of plans sort of going wrong all at the same time right i guess no one told julian to murder them no he, yeah, he came up with that idea himself. And right. they, you know, they took him because they were told to take him right. from Marin. Right. So that was kind of her plan. Right. And it wasn't like Tracy Letts was like, you should take the, take our son and take run away. Right. That was <laughs> right. It wasn't like he was. Yeah. So, so there's, so the answer is there's a lot of overlapping plans. Yes. Uh, I think we asked about whatever happened to 
Lionel Jeffries, the guy who ran Mosswood before Vera. That we that's a that's a I think that's a hanging Chad here. Yeah, I guess we're I don't know. Did they ever say they that showed, he like left Mosswood? Well, just they showed, and went off into the woods. They showed Vera serving him tea. Yeah, I, and I do we, you think he died? We I have to I guess we have to assume he died. Which is the other sort of open question: is what was the who was the body in the lake? Mm-hmm. Because oh, yeah. we thought it was Marin. When they right. introduce it, you're meant to think it's Marin. That's another sort of uh, fake out. But maybe it was, maybe it was Lionel Jeffries. We still don't know. Well, they said that it was a woman, and he was right. He's a big enough guy to not be mistaken for a lady. I I'm not like. a coroner. <laughs> I never got past, you know, like the entry courses to, right. you know, cor- you coroner school. And I thought, let's let's go into podcasting instead. So I'm not sure, but what you're saying seems right. But I don't, I don't know. I don't, I can't say no. It's not him because it's. I mean, they got the identity wrong once. That's true. Maybe they got it wrong twice. Who Maybe knows? the tea just shriveled him up a little bit, and he, right. <laughs> he fell into the lake. Right. So that's. I mean, those were those were all our questions. So we. It seems like we they answered most of them. Yeah. But they did leave a couple of lingering. I mean, I think we can draw some conclusions, especially the thing about Lionel Jeffries. I think we should just assume that they they killed him, and with, maybe he is the body. With the loose ends, I feel like it's. Those are minor ones. Yeah. We can kind of, it's what, you know, whatever is the thing that makes sense the most, I think, is probably. Right. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter that much in terms of the main story, which is about Julian Mm -hmm. and what he did and why Mm -hmm. and who his parents are and all that stuff. We know all that. We know all that. Absolutely. But I mean, the fact that there are a few lingering questions makes me wonder, like, for a season three of The Sinner, would you want more in this in, in in this setting, would you want uh, Mosswood somehow in the background or would you prefer Harry Ambrose finding shadows to stand in in a totally different location or perhaps <laughs> in the setting of the first season? You know, the first two seasons are set in different places. Uh, for a third season, what, what what would you prefer? Would you, you know, would you like, you know, him to continue seeing Vera and having this very disturbing therapy? I think – Maybe you know, has he healed enough? Well, I don't think he's healed at all. Yeah. I think he's only he's even worse. He's, off even, than more he messed, was. he's even more messed up now. Um, I want him to go. I want like a Miami Vice with Harry Ambrose. Oh, I want wow. him to go to a tropical location, now, be would, forced to stand in the sun, <laughs> so that we can see his face. Would Would you want Heather as his partner? Um. Maybe the crocket to his tubs, or vice versa, as the case may be. I mean, she can't keep living with her dad after this. Oh no, that uh, no, that's, that's not happening anymore. Uh, it's a, you, is anything going to happen to him? Because he committed a crime. Well, I think that's for the courts to decide. Yeah. Um, I mean, that the, w- one question we haven't talked about that I had was how how trustworthy was his story? You know, mm-hmm. his version. That's it, that's his version of the events and of the murder. And they did say, well, it seems like there was a struggle. It seems like she was holding the gun. It seems like it was an accident. I was wondering, like, even after he explained everything, like, do I necessarily buy that story? It could be one of those, like, subjective. I've never trusted that character from day one. So <laughs> I don't know if I trust him now, even after he's explained what happened. You're on the record not as not trusting that's him. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, yeah a season three. I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like even though there are those sort of lingering questions and I wouldn't have minded to see more of like I, I really dug those episodes, the early episodes of the season where Mosswood like when there's, you know, like the doctor in town is involved and it seemed like the <laughs> whole this whole bright, shiny, small town, wholesome, small town is secretly like, 
you know, like the the tentacles of the cult have spread into the town. And I like I dug all that stuff and I wouldn't have minded if there was more of it. It seemed very like hot fuzz. One of my favorite movies. Everybody's involved. I have no problem with that at all. Uh, Let's do it all for the greater good. Yeah, for the greater good. uh, But uh, I guess I would – I think I would like, you know, a totally new setting uh, again. I think so. And I think that's probably what they're going to do. Yeah, I would would assume so. And and I would be happy with that and let Ambrose have another case to make him even more Send him to the Bahamas. I'm that, sure there are like weird psychosexual drug stuff in the Bahamas. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't. Again, I don't know. From, I'm, I don't know from experience, but it wouldn't shock me. Yeah, and I would be fine as long as yeah, as long as there's horrible, messed up things for him to investigate, involving involving terrible people who actually aren't that bad once you get to know them, but they still do terrible things. Mm-hmm. I'm on board. I'm all. I'm all for it. Yeah, we're ready. Give us season three. And now, more from our very exciting and fun interview with Carrie Coon. Since you've just wrapped, what are your feelings about the whole experience? Well, like I said, I, I mean, coming into this job, it was really too soon after having a baby. And what made it satisfying was the, the kind of people I had the opportunity to work with. It really is a, it was a lovely set. It was a very calm set. It was a very capable crew, as they always are, really. And the actors were were really fun, reasonable, interesting people, as they often are, most often. And, um, you know, I had fun. I I, I guess it's fun to do a detective story. The twists and and turns are a little salacious, and they're... um, uh, You know, there's some some really fun, bold storytelling in our show. Um, because it, because the, the genre gives you license to do that, I believe. And because USA is so supportive of our, of our mission, which is this why done it, which is a kind of twist on the genre, which is, you know, you know what the crime is. You just don't know why the person did it. And in a world where we're operating so much on it, you know, on, in the black and white, um, I feel like we're really polarized right now and we forget that most of the issues that we're contending with are much more complicated than we, than can be boiled down on Twitter. <laughs> and so to, to be on a show that dabbles in the gray area of, of human motivation is really satisfying to me right now because I needed to be reminded of that, like we all must be, that these things that we're trying to figure out as a country or, you know, even as a person, they're, they're more complicated than yes or no or or black or white. It's, it's, it's very, um, you know, the human condition. I, I guess these questions have been being asked for a very long time. <laughs> so there are no easy answers. And I think our show does that very well. Our show acknowledges that there aren't easy answers to these problems. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's satisfying because it reflects the world that I live in. That's it for this season of Still Watching The Sinner. Thank you so much for listening, and please continue tuning in to Still Watching. This episode was edited and produced by Brandon Harrison.